Wealth can be measured in many ways. As it grows, life can quickly become complex, creating the need for more focused planning. Welcome to We're Talking Money with OmniStar Financial Group. OmniStar has been helping clients achieve financial success for more than 20 years in a client-centric and stress-free environment. With a reputation built on a long track record of working with people who want to grow and protect their assets, OmniStar illuminates the blind spots and provides actionable strategies to help you achieve what's most important. This is where you can count on straightforward and unbiased advice from a team of professionals that are passionate about your success. Well, we are back again for another episode of We're Talking Money, the expert series. And today we have David Anderson, uh, one of our preferred local estate planning attorneys here with us today to talk through some of the core estate planning documents that you might come across as you begin preparing your estate planning package, if you will. Without further ado, I'll have David dive in a little bit. We're going to go right through these and then we're going to talk through a couple different scenarios that you might come across and, and why it's important to have these documents in place when we come across that. So let's get started. The last will and testament, the most common document basically there is. Hey, good morning, Alex. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So the the last will and testament, that's probably the the minimum that your client should probably be having in place. Typically we see several kinds of estate plans. You know, one is no plan at all. So if you have no plan, obviously the laws of North Carolina are going to direct how your estate's handled. The next level is kind of what we call pay on death, transfer on death type planning, where they don't have any you know, estate plan that's been professionally done, but they go to their bank and they make sure their accounts are payable to their beneficiaries who they want to have their stuff, as well as any retirement accounts. And that might work for some people, but you know, the will, I think, is the, the minimum, you know, will-based plan. And so the last will and testament is just a written document that lays out your plan for who you want to get your stuff and who you want to be in charge of handling your affairs when you pass away. That's great. You know, something our listeners may have questions about is, one, you know, if all of their assets are or have a beneficiary designation on them, do they still need a will? But for some people who have very simple estates, maybe they just have, you know, maybe a life insurance policy or they have an IRA with a beneficiary on it, and then they have their house. What would that scenario look like with, you know, just a will and testament in place? With just a will in place? Well, I mean, that, that would be a fairly simple estate. However, you know, having the will is important because there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, I think about your clothes and your personal stuff in your house, your furniture, your collectibles, you know, who's going to get that stuff? The will should direct where that stuff goes. As far as the beneficiary designations, those are great to handle those. I mean, we can keep getting in the weeds on it if you want to. But I mean, what it sounds like to me, though, is you're using that will kind of as the catch-all bucket. So what you're right. going to use to pick up all the odds and ends items, grandma's old tea set, perhaps that tractor you have sitting in the backyard that there's no real other way to dispose of. And if it's not in the will, then I guess the court's going to decide where it goes or is that accurate? That's right. And and you bring up a good point. So with a lot of form wills, what we see is they get the will and what do they want to do? They want to give their car away or their boat away, but they don't think about all the other stuff. And so, you know, a will should have what's called a residue clause, which is like you said, it's the bucket. It's everything else that you didn't think of. So if there's not a specific gift in place, you, you need to have a professional will that's going to have that residue clause that's going to give everything out. But with a form-based will that doesn't have that, you have kind of a part will, part not will estate. Because mm. then you have to go to court and you have to figure out who are the, what we call, intestate heirs. Who does North Carolina law say are the heirs of your estate, not who you want them to be? 
but who does law say? So that, that's really good to know. So if you do not have a proper will set up, then you really can't decide where things go. It's good to know. The next document we were going to go over today is just a basic revocable living trust. Pretty common. A lot of our listeners probably have heard of this. We may have recommended you get one and you haven't done that. You know, we, we still recommend you get your trust work done. But what, why would we be recommending someone use a trust, maybe over a will? Where could it be prefer, you know, preferential? So I, I'm, I'm really in favor of trust for, for most people because trust are kind of like the game of life. You can write the directions as you see fit as long as they're not illegal. So trusts are really good for probate avoidance, privacy, asset protection, or what we call after-death control of money. I'll, I'll kind of go into each one of those and what that means. So privacy, when you probate a will, you probate it in the court in the county where you lived when you passed away. After you probate the will, you have to do an inventory of the estate. And so on that inventory, it's a public document that lists all your assets and who gets your assets. And so privacy for a lot of people is important because think of leaving a spouse behind and, uh, you know, somebody that's not of great character could go down and find out who the widow is and what she got. And then they could contact them and try to sell them something that they don't need. For example, probate avoidance. Typically, we get clients to come in that have just dealt with an estate, whether it be a parent or a loved one. And yeah, they see the, the complications of the process and they say, I don't want to go through this again. And so that's where a trust comes in and you, know, you can avoid the probate process. We talked about asset protection. So when you're, when you're setting up a trust, a trust is like an empty jar that's sitting on the table when it's formed. And you can put things in that jar. So you could put a little house in the jar. You could put your bank account in the jar. And when you pass away, you're just handing that jar over to your successor trustee. And they're going to do with it as your directions that you've your trust, which are the directions as they say, see fit. So if you say, I want the house to go to Alex, but then I want the bank account to go to Phil, that trustee is obligated to do that, where that might not be the way the law passes it. So the asset protection portion is if you wanted the house to stay in trust for your lifetime, you can benefit from it, but you don't own it. If you are sued by anybody, they can't get to that asset if it's properly drafted. Divorce, those are some of the instances, bankruptcy that you're protecting them from. The last thing I mentioned was after-death control of the assets. And a lot of times we have folks come in and they say, listen, I, I really like my daughter-in-law or son-in-law, but I just don't want them to get everything. And so, you know, with a trust, you can leave it in trust for their lifetime, and you can even allow them to direct where it goes when they pass away, but you're really kind of safeguarding against that in-law taking control of those assets and doing with them as they want. That makes sense. Yeah, I know we talk a lot about trusts around here. And you know, when we when we think about a trust, I mean, who do you think is a better candidate for a will than a trust? I mean, I, I know frequently with our clientele, we're usually recommending trust work over a will. That being said, I mean, who might not need a trust? I mean, I, I know it's usually the more prudent option, but. So I think if you're dealing with a young, young individual or a young couple who hasn't amassed your property in multiple jurisdictions, whether it be counties or states, you know, a will might be good as a foundational piece. When you're talking about young couples, we have to talk about something else, which is minor children, which we'll come back around to, I'm sure. But so I think the will is probably a better option for a younger younger couple. Now, that said, if you're dealing with young professionals, probably going to be in the trust realm just because of the different types of assets. And again, it's not about value, <clears throat> so to speak. You know, people tell me all the time, hey, I don't have $3 million. Why do I need a trust? Well, it's not about 
the value. It's about the type of the asset. That's really is what's important. That makes sense. That makes sense. So let's transition to the next document and then we will bring in some examples. Definitely want to know what happens if, you know, for say you pass away with some underage children, you know, you've got eight and eight and a 10 year old and, and where are these documents can be really helpful for those people. But for durable powers of attorney, why do you need those? I think they're, they're talked about quite frequently. Usually they're recommended that, you know, you have one, maybe someone in your family is listed as your durable power of attorney. Why is that document so frequently talked about? So a power of attorney is going to allow somebody to act for you on your behalf. And that's really important when you can't act for yourself, whether you become disabled, say you're in a car accident, who's going to pay your bills while you're in the hospital or when you're incapacitated? They are, right? Well, can they do it legally? They may have access to the bank account and they may be able to pay stuff online in today's online world, but in reality, they can't legally do that. So if you can't legally do that and you don't have a power of attorney, you have to go down to the court and you have to petition for guardianship. The high level summary of that is the court has to determine somebody lacks, they're not capable, so they have no capacity, and then they have to appoint somebody to take care of their assets. Again, they're taking control of all their assets. It's a fairly expensive process because you have to hire an attorney, file a court action, have a hearing. You know, with a simple power of attorney, you can avoid a lot of that. So the power of attorney is going to allow your attorney, in fact, or your agent to be able to access your bank accounts, handle your real estate transactions. They may need to get access to money for your care. So they need to be able to access maybe your investment accounts that you had invested for retirement, but now you need some type of care during your lifetime. And the durable part just means that they're still in place after you become incapacitated. So it really avoids the necessity of a public hearing that says, hey, Alex lacks legal capacity. And so who are we going to put in place to take care of Alex's stuff? It's very important with children. Who's going to care for your children in that interim gray area, which Mm. we'll come back to, which that gray area is between the incident that occurs and when somebody's appointed. So you're in a car accident. How long does it take to, one, determine that you need somebody, then file the action, get it calendared, get it heard, and get somebody in place? So there could be several months of gray area. So you're really at the mercy of the court then almost. Yeah. That, that can be tough. And think about what we're going through right now. You know, with COVID, it's shut the courts down. And so it's been kind of a, it's been an issue to deal with mm-hmm. that. You know, we've had some Zoom meetings with the court, but it's not efficient. No, I wish courts were more efficient, but I both <laughs> think we yeah, lack in that area a little bit, but they have a lot to deal with. So yes, they do. a lot of people want a lot of things uh, all the time. So the next document is the healthcare power of attorney. So another power of attorney, instead of durable, this time we're talking about healthcare. This one is, I think this is one of the ones that once you turn 18, everyone says, hey, you need to get this because your parents lose some of the power they have, but maybe you can go into depth around that. You know, what, what's specifically so important about that healthcare power of attorney? Sure. Yeah. So the healthcare power attorney is going to appoint somebody to communicate your healthcare wishes when you can't do that. So you don't have to be deemed incompetent. You just can't communicate. So as simple as being in a car accident, again, you're in an ambulance, maybe you're unconscious or you've been intubated. Who's going to speak on your behalf? Who's going to tell the hospital what your wishes were? You know, the greater side of that is the incapacity issue that we just talked about. You know, it's going to alleviate the need to have a guardian appointed because you're going to have somebody that's responsible for your health care. It's also important for that person to know what you want. And by having this document in place, it's making you think about that process and think about who you want to be that person and having that conversation with them. So you, you bring up a good point. Around this time of year, every year, we, we kind of mention it to our clients, which is, hey, we know that your 18 or 19-year-old is now in college. And as far as you're concerned, they're still your child. You pay all the bills. 
you know, you kind of direct their life. But if something were to happen to them at school, they're an adult, and you have no legal right to their medical information or their school information for that matter. So without these documents in place for a newly attained adult, 18 Mm -hmm. or 19-year-old, you could be lost. And you're not going to be lost until you're in a dire situation. Yeah. I mean, that's what it seems like is kind of the common trend about everything we're talking about. And, you know, something that we frequently talk to our clients about is that, you know, estate planning is probably not the most sexy thing to think about. You know, you're talking about your death. You're talking about bad situations that could potentially happen to you. But at the end of the day, having these documents in place ahead of time really can help your family out. It can help your loved ones out. It can even help you out. A few of these situations, healthcare related, incapacity related, they might not be permanent. And you may be much better off having a caring, loving family member dictating your course rather than a court-appointed individual who may not know you. So very important to get these documents taken care of. The last document on our list, and then we'll dive into talking about minors, is the living will. So what does this do compared to the other documents that we've talked about? So a living will, you know, the name is kind of confusing. We've talked about a will. We've talked about a trust, Mm -hmm. a living trust. Now we're talking about a living will. A living will is basically an advanced directive for what you want to happen if you are in a vegetative and incurable state. So you're the way it plays out, you're in the hospital, you're laying on the bed, the doctors have done everything they can do, and now they've come to your loved ones, and they have to make a decision. Are we going to leave Alex on life support, or are we going to pull the plug, so to speak? That's a hard, hard question. And you're asking somebody that's grieving and dealing with something that they probably didn't plan for. And so the living will allows you during your lifetime to make that decision now. And it's a very personal decision, especially when we're dealing with spouses. They oftentimes don't have the same thoughts and wishes, and that's okay. You know, they can have individual living wills that are different. But, you know, some people say, I don't want anything. And that's fine. But you're going to need something in place that says that. Otherwise, you're going to leave that decision on your loved ones. And some people may opt for that, and that's fine. But others that don't want to have to add that to the stress of the situation say, hey, right now, I don't want to be put on life life support. I don't want to be kept alive by artificial nutrition or or hydration. But it does allow for you still to get hospice care, so comfort care. So how does that work, and when should somebody look into having a living well? You know, I I would think that if you're 25 and you have a major health concern or, you know, you're you're hospitalized, I feel like you may not even really know what you want to have done. I, I mean, I feel like there's so many variables. You know, if it's like, hey, it might take a year for you to recover, but we think there's a chance we're going to put you on life support and try and make you recover. If you're 85, you've got other health conditions and they say, well, you might recover after a year. You might take it a different way. You know, while it's not a fun topic to talk about, when do you typically see people looking at getting a living will? Do they do it when they do these other documents or some other time? Well, that's a good question. So when we do documents for our clients, it's, it's, it's a process. So the documents are just a result of the estate planning process. And so we talk about that during the process and it's part of the result for all of our clients. Now, whether or not they want to execute it or not, you know, that's an individual decision. But yeah, it, it, it's included and it should be included in any reputable estate plan. You know, these documents you've listed should be included. Gotcha. That is great to know. As we start to wrap up here, we'd love to 
step back. I know we talked a little bit about how these circumstances can all change if you have young children, how they can be a variable, especially, you know, just for working with some of our clients, if they've got, if they're fairly high net worth, and the children are really young, what happens if they pass away? Where does the money go? What's the best way to, you know, title assets? You know, maybe you can dive into that a little bit for our listeners and sure. help us understand it. <laughs> yeah. So, so even, even if we're talking about a will-based plan, you know, there should be something in the will that says if, if there's a minor that a trust is automatic set up. And it doesn't have to be really detailed. You know, ours is fairly detailed in our documents, but if it just says if they're under 18, the trust should be set up until they turn 18. I, th- I think that's important because otherwise you're going to have to go to court and hash it out. So when minors are involved, we do what's called a, a like a standby guardian form. And what that means is let's say that you and your wife are out to dinner. You don't have your phone on. And I, I know that's probably not going to happen this day and age, but let's say you don't have your phone on and something happens. Ran out of battery. Come right. There you, there, you there you go. There you go. And you know, Something happens to one of your children. You have a babysitter there. Can that babysitter take them to the hospital and get treatment for them? Do they have to wait for you to get home? So the standby guardian um, form allows somebody to be named as the guardian. And again, it's an interim period. You can't officially appoint somebody in your documents. That's going to have to be a court-decided thing for a minor. But naming them in the documents is some indication to the court what your wishes are. And so this the standby kind of guardianship thing is for the gray area. Okay, so you and your wife are on the way to the movies, get in a car accident, unfortunate event, but who's with your children? So maybe you have a, a sister or a sister-in-law that is, would be a really good person to step in. So you have the standby guardian that says that, you know, hey, my sister-in-law is going to be act as a parent. I'm authorized them now to direct medical decisions for my children, and that's going to allow them to do that. Mm-hmm. You, you also give them a power of attorney as well to be able to pay for those assets and really just to handle in that gray zone of several months for the children. It's important. And, you know, if you're, if you're doing trust planning, it's, it's really important to have a discussion about how are those assets going to go out to your beneficiaries. 18 is a terribly young age, in my opinion. It's hard to find very many mature 18-year-olds. And you've saved your whole life for these assets. And you're just going to hand them to, to your children at 18. I think that's a dangerous proposition. But it's something that we discuss. And obviously, that's individual. Every plan is individual. We don't have the same documents that we just write in the name at the top and hand them to the clients. <laughs> that would make it easy, wouldn't it? It would. It would. <laughs> that wouldn't be doing them any justice. I agree with that. And I think you know, when you're working with a, especially a higher net worth family and you know, some of these families, they spend a lot of time teaching their children how to act around money, how to treat money, how to, you know, instill in them that you really have to be somewhat conservative with money until you know how to use it, how to get more of it. You know, someone can hand you a million dollars because they unfortunately pass away. But if you don't know how to make money yourself, it's going to probably turn into a nice car, maybe a nice home, and then you're going to not be able to make payments on it. And it's going to go to the bank. So pretty commonly we see some, you know, work just what you mentioned being put in place to help prevent that from occurring, especially after it took the parents 40 years of a hard working career to amass those kind of assets. Sure. I guess we'll wrap it up right there. I think that's a pretty good summary of the different documents in the basic estate planning package, if you will. Talked about last will and testaments. We've talked about living trusts, durable powers of attorney, healthcare powers of attorney, and a living will. If you have any questions, you can always feel free to reach out to us or reach out to David Anderson. We would both be happy to dive in and give you a little bit more of an understanding of what your options are with the basics of estate planning. Once again, thanks for joining us on We're Talking Money, and we look forward to talking with you again in a couple of weeks. Thanks again for having me, Alex. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. 
Thanks for joining us on We're Talking Money. Be sure to visit our website, www.omnistarfinancial.com, where you can learn more about how we provide value to our clients. Subscribe to the show and our newsletters, and drop us a line with suggestions for upcoming shows. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or simply tell a friend about the show. This podcast is a publication of Omnistar Financial Group. Any information provided has been prepared from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed, does not represent all available data necessary for making business or investment decisions, and is for informational purposes only and does not represent or constitute any recommendations. All expressions of opinion reflect that of the authors and are subject to change. If this podcast contains any projections, forecasts, guarantees, and or predictions of any kind, you're required to ignore the same. Omnistar is not engaged in the practice of law or accounting, and any information in this podcast should not be construed legal or tax advice. Any distributions, use, or copying of this podcast, other than the intended recipients, is unauthorized.